There are so many aspects of the Buddhist teachings which resonate with our common sense understanding about the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom. Now we understand the importance of non-harming as the basis for living harmoniously in community, whether it's local community or global community. So this is easy to understand. We understand that all things in our lives are changing and that the more we hold on to or the more we grasp at that which in its nature changes, the more we'll suffer. Well, this is fairly obvious, even if we don't live it completely, it's not difficult to comprehend. But there's one aspect of the teachings that really offers a profoundly different view of ourselves and of the world. This aspect of the teachings really challenges our entire world view. And it's the understanding that makes the Buddha's enlightenment such an extraordinary happening in all of the spiritual cultures of awakening. And this is the deep understanding and realization of selflessness or emptiness, emptiness of self. In Pali, the word is anatta. It's the understanding or the realization of the empty, insubstantial nature of all phenomena. This realization of selflessness is really the liberating jewel of the Buddha's teachings. As the observing power of our minds gets stronger through the practice of mindfulness, through the development of concentration, as our observing power gets stronger, we see more and more clearly that the self is not what we thought it to be. We see that the self is not the body. We see that it's not thoughts. We see that it's not emotions. We see on a deeper level that awareness is not self. That consciousness is not self. We begin to see through our own investigation, not through some belief system, but we begin to see through our own growing discernment that the I, the self, is a mental construct. It's a fabrication of mind. It's a mental construct. And to the degree that we begin to understand self as a concept, it comes as both a great surprise and also a great relief. Now, all of those troubling aspects of our personalities, which we see more and more clearly, as we said, which was expressed in one favorite line, self-knowledge is always bad news. 
because we just come face to face with all the patterns. So it's kind of a relief to know that all those troubling personality traits are not self. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to anyone, as well as all the wonderful qualities. They are all simply appearances. That is, experiences, all the experiences of mind and body, experiences arising out of momentary changing conditions. So as we see this, we begin to experience the relief, which one Sri Lankan monk summed up very well when he said, no self, no problem. So tonight I'd like to talk about how the mind creates this very deeply held concept. Because we all hold this notion, this idea of self, very deeply. So I'd like to explore a little bit how it is that we create it, and also how we can be free of this great illusion, the illusion of self. It's what the Buddha called in Pali Sakaya Ditti, or wrong view, mistaken view. In order to understand how we construct the notion of self and the experience of selflessness, we need to look a little bit into the nature of concepts. In our usual way of being in the world and relating in the world, we very quickly give a name or a concept, we lay a name or a concept on top of our experience. And it's as if we're living our lives through the filter of these mental constructions. And then our experience becomes limited by the concept not only is it limited by it, our relationship to the experience itself is determined by the concept and can change if our concepts about the experience change. I'd like to just give you two, two illustrations of this. It's two stories. One was told to me by a yogi on retreat. They were describing a situation where they were building a house and they had just moved in and as they were building it, they saw, this was out in the, the woods of New England, you know, they saw uh, some great, big, beautiful bird, you know, kind of flying around the house. And when they moved in, they kind of heard this chirping sound in the basement. And they just had this thought, oh, great, you know, somehow when they were building, the bird built a nest and laid eggs, and it just made them so happy, you know, to think of, you know, the birds the little birds chirping away in the basement. And then after a week or so, they had a building inspector come, you know, to look at the house, and he went into the basement. He came back up and said, you know your smoke alarm is broken, and it's just beeping away. <laughs> oh, and then they couldn't live with the sound. They had, to change, they had to change it immediately. When they thought it was a bird chirping, they were quite delighted. When they thought it was a smoke alarm, it had to be fixed. Same sound. 
our concepts determine a lot how we live in the world. I'll share another story with you in this regard. This is this is a Joseph miracle story. <laughs> I, I've performed one miracle in my life. And this goes back many years. I was teaching in California, up in the Redwoods, in Northern California, and before the morning sitting, I was sitting with a colleague of mine, and just, we were talking a bit before going into the sitting, and just spontaneously, out of my mouth came a cloud of smoke and ash. And it, it was really very strange. It was really, and, you know, you could, you could actually you see it, and it was a sweet-smelling, kind of a sweet-smelling ash. So, oh, you know, what's that about? I had no idea. You know, so, okay. It was just so we go and finish the retreat, and then it was just the year we taught our first three-month course, so this was back in the 70s, in Maine, on the other side of the country. So we're teaching the three-month course, and I went into the local bank, you know, and I was just in front of the teller doing some transaction, and the same thing happened right in the teller's face. <laughs> this cloud of smoke and ash came out. So then, I mean, what is this? <laughs> so I started asking around, you know, people who I thought might know. And at that time, I mean, most of you probably know who Ramdas is, you know, kind of spiritual, wrote Be Here Now. So at that time, he was with this teacher in New York, Joya, uh, who was kind of psychic and. So through a friend, you know, I asked Joya, you know, well, what is this? And she said, oh, this is, there's an Indian saint, Sai Baba, you know, in India who kind of produces this holy ash, you know, just spontaneously. So she says, oh, this is the, the vibhuti, the ash of Sai Baba. Okay. <laughs> that sounded good. And then, you know, a month or two later, I met with my teacher, Munindraji, and I told him what happened. And I asked him what he thought it was, and he said, oh, it is the fire element. You know, it's just that element in the body doing its thing. And then some months later, I was with Deepama, you know, our teacher, uh, this wonderful woman teacher from Calcutta, who's a tremendous yogi and great psychic powers and just quite an unbelievable being. So I asked her what it was, and she said, oh, you must have some disease. So from the holy ash of Sai Baba to needing a medical checkup, it's all just concepts. Experience is what it is. And we can put a lot of different interpretations on it, but if we're too locked into the concept, we really lose the connection with just the bare fact of the experience. And we build a whole worldview of ourselves, of things outside of ourselves. Sometimes our conceptual overlay is relatively harmless, as in the cases I mentioned. But very often, the concepts we employ in the world commonly, you know, as human beings, sometimes they can have really harmful consequences if we don't understand them as being concepts. So I'll give you a few examples. 
we're quite attached and identified to the concept of place, as if somehow the earth is really divided into separate countries and separate nations. I mean, we see the effect of attachment to that concept. It's not that the concept is not useful, but when we take it to be some fundamental reality, you know, how many wars have been fought over that? Well, you see, I mean, it's really interesting in a sad kind of way when you think of, you know, all the colonial powers, you know, in Africa or the Mideast, you know, when they're leaving, dividing up the land, creating countries, often without any regard to the natural uh, tribal uh, areas. You know, just so create these often very uh, messy situations because it's overlaying a concept without regard to the reality on the ground. It's interesting. I mean, Gaia House is such a beautiful symbol in the, the sign, you know, out on the road. Really, from from space, the Earth is not divided. You know, this is this is a construct that has been created. Again, it has some uses, but it has tremendous danger. Another concept, very common in the world, is the concept of ownership. We have the idea that we own things. Favorite story of mine is by Mark Twain, the famous American writer. He told a story of horse traders in Russia, but he told the whole story from the horse's point of view. And the horses had no idea that they were owned by anybody. You know, they were just in relationship to various kinds of human beings. But the notion of being owned never occurred to them. We see it on large scales. You know, the implications of this concept of ownership, we see it on small scale. How would you feel if somebody, you walked into the hall for sitting and somebody was sitting on your cushion? I'll bet there would be a moment. (laughs) It doesn't take long to establish a sense of ownership, a sense of possessiveness. When I first came back from India, this was, you know, again, back in the 70s, and I was teaching at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And I was the first one back among, you know, all my friends in India, and the only one with a job. Uh, So as my other friends came back, no place to go, no money, what should we do? Let's go visit Joseph in Boulder. And I was pretty busy. I was teaching many classes a day, but these were, you know, my old good friends. I said, sure, come on and stay. And one, two, three, four, you know, just living the living room floor. And after a while, I began to feel, oh, you know, I need my space. <laughs> this is too much. And I was getting more and more kind of uptight about the situation. And then I realized that it all had to do, my suffering had to do with the notion that it was my space. And I realized that in the times in India, 
we had shared spaces much smaller with many more people and it was all fine. I didn't have any problem with it at all. But as soon as it became my space, even with good friends, at a certain point, it created a conflict. So it's just to see, in big ways and in small ways, how our concept about situations really influences and conditions how we're relating to them. A concept even more powerful in our lives, which has tremendous consequences for us, is our attachment to the concept of time, of past and future. It's very interesting to look carefully into one's own mind, one's own experience, to see what past and future really are. You know, we're sitting here, kind of feeling the breath, and we have certain kinds of thoughts. We have memories, remembrances, recollections, and somewhere in our minds we have created a concept around all those kinds of thoughts, which we call memories, or they may be pictures, they may be thoughts, they may be feelings. We put a concept on it, past, and then somehow, and this is a great feat of mental gymnastics, we take this concept which we created of past, throw it out behind us as if the past is a reality back there someplace, from which we've come. And we do the same thing with future. We have certain kinds of thoughts, anticipation, imagining. We create a concept future, toss it out ahead of us, and then the future is a reality out there which is waiting for us. How do you ever experience past or future? The only way you ever experience experience past or future is as a thought or a feeling in the moment. Where else could it be experienced except in the moment? So this is amazing. We've created a whole construct of a past reality, a future reality. We carry this burden in our lives. It's like we're carrying two mountains on our shoulders of past and future it's tremendously weighty. When we see that in our experience, I'm not talking about some metaphysical nature of time here. I'm talking very pragmatically about how we experience it. When we see that we experience past and future only as a thought or an image or a feeling in the moment, that's very light. It's really light. So it's not that we don't use the concepts we do. You know, we can plan and we can remember and all the functions that come out of those concepts are fine. It's when we take them to be a reality outside of our experience in the moment, that's when the problem arises. And that's when we weigh ourselves, weigh ourselves down. It's very freeing to see it all as an arising in the moment. All the memories, all the plans, all the recollections, all the anticipation, 
It's all a thought right now. Much, much lighter. On a more subtle level, we also create the concept of present, not only past and future. We create a concept of present moment, and then we become attached or fixated to that. And this is often in the name of spiritual practice, you know, because so much of the instruction is stay in the moment, you know, be in the present. Well, the Buddha is saying something a little bit different. He's saying the present is a concept as well. And there's one very powerful line, a verse in the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's teachings. This verse could enlighten us, you know, if we just hear it in the right way. So, get ready. Okay, this, this really could do it. <laughs> let go of the past. Let go of the future. Let go of the present. And cross over to the further shore. Awakening. With a mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. And cross over to the further shore. Very powerful to step out of time altogether. So this concept of place, concepts of ownership, concepts of time, We create a lot of concepts around self-image, you know, of how we present ourselves to ourselves and to the world. There's an old Zen story about this governor of Kyoto, uh, Suzuki, who went to see a Zen master, and he went to the gate of the temple and presented his card, you know, it said, oh, you know, Mr. Suzuki, governor of Kyoto. And the Zen master told the attendant to throw, throw him out. He didn't want to see him. But the governor was, he was wise. He was a wise man. So he, so he took his card and he crossed out governor of Kyoto <laughs> and give the card back. And the Zen master told the oh, this is Mr. Suzuki. I want to see that fellow. When he presented himself as governor of Kyoto, there's really no chance for the connection there to happen because it's presenting an image, a role. When we just are in the truth of the moment's experience, we're not attached to a concept of role or image that we've created. We also create kind of spiritual self-images. And it's not only out in the world, it's right here on retreat. We can create all kinds of images which lead to comparison, which lead to judgment. On one retreat, the first one I did with Saida Upandita, you know, a Burmese teacher, who's quite a fierce and demanding teacher. So the retreat, it was a three-month retreat, you know, we were only sleeping four hours a night. It was pretty intense. We were seeing him every day, six days a week, you know, so the, the pressure was building. So after a few weeks, I saw the yogis who were really moving mindfully. 
they all had these little notebooks. So then I thought to myself, ah, little Pandita must have given them a special assignment for good yogis. You know, so then I felt terrible. I thought, oh, he didn't tell me to do that. And then, you know, a week later or two weeks later, I saw yogis who I thought were not being so mindful. You know, just kind of moving around. They had notebooks. <laughs> so then I have, oh, I must be such a good yogi that Upandita thought I didn't need this, didn't need a notebook. And I was just going back and forth, good yogi, bad yogi. You know, what does the notebook mean? After the retreat, I've been, it was not anything from Upandita at all. People were just using notebooks to report to their interviews, to remember, you know, what their experience was. But I had created this whole world, you know, of spiritual comparison. What is it? It's just attachment to concepts, attachment to self-image. Concepts become limiting even about things that seem more fundamental in our lives. Things like age or gender or race or culture. You know, we, we don't often tend to think of them as being concepts. Well, that's, that's who I am. What color is your mind? You know, is your mind black or white or yellow or brown? How old is your breath? Oh, my breath is 55 years old. You know, is the pain in your knee, is it male or female? Anger, love, joy. Is that English? Is that French? Is that Indian? Is that Tibetan? It's not to say that these concepts don't point to some differences of experience, because they do point to something. But if we get identified with and attached to the concept, if we don't see that they're just concepts, it really can create a tremendous amount of conflict and divisiveness in the world, because we lose the sense and the experience of the underlying commonality. And we see just the, the kinds of racial discrimination or religious warfare. Could anything be more absurd than killing one another over different religious beliefs? I mean, it's just it's attachment to concept, attachment to an idea with disastrous consequences. The deepest conditioning we have, and the one that is the root cause of suffering in our own lives and in the world, and this, this goes very deep, is our attachment to the concept of self. Now we create a reference point behind experience We've created a reference point behind experience as if there's someone there to whom experience is happening. And we call that reference point, which we have created, 
we call that reference point self or Joseph. Now the Buddha's teaching on anatta sees this mind-body process and sees the world very differently. And this is the power of the practice. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Now after a rainstorm and the sun comes out and sometimes you go outside and you see a rainbow. And the first reaction of most of us, oh, look at the beautiful rainbow. But is there anything which is actually a rainbow? Really what's happening is that there's light and air and moisture and these certain conditions come together and there's an appearance of something. There's an appearance of a rainbow, but the rainbow is not something which exists in and of itself, apart from the conditions which have given rise to the appearance. We go to the movies, you know, we get very engrossed in the story, really engrossed, you know, we're caught up emotionally and really engaged. Is anything really happening on the screen? You know, is there men and women and people getting chased and killed and falling in love and nothing is going on. It's all an appearance, it's a constellation of light and color and, you know, and there's an appearance of something, but there's no substratum to whom it's referring. There's another example which I can't let pass, the opportunity pass by. It's an example I've been given for 40 years. (laughs) So, for those of you who've been on retreat before, I'll inflict it again. Do you know the constellation, the Big Dipper? <laughs> you know, when the sky's finally clear, <laughs> and you go out at night and you look up, you know, and you see the constellation, the Big Dipper. Midterm exam on the retreat. Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? No. There's no Big Dipper. It's just stars in a certain pattern, points of light in a certain pattern. We put the concept Big Dipper, you know. What's interesting is to go out at night, look up at the sky and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. Very difficult, once, once you have recognized it. We've been so conditioned to see in a certain way. Well, the concept of self, the concept of Joseph, of Patricia, of Carol, of each one of us, The concept is like a rainbow. It's like the Big Dipper. It's like a character on the screen. There's a pattern of elements. There's a pattern of mind-body elements which come together and it appears a certain way. This is not to say that The pattern is not there, it is there. And that's why each morning you get up, look in the mirror, yep, that's me again. Because the pattern is there, but when you look more deeply, 
There's no self, there's no I behind the pattern to whom it's all happening. And this is the understanding, this is the realization of selflessness. So an important step in our practice, and this is an important level shift in meditation, is when we go from the level of concept, from the level of interpretation of experience, to the direct experience itself. And this shift was described, although she was not talking about meditation per se, but the description is very beautiful. This was by the writer, Native American writer in the States, Louise Erdrich. She's a beautiful writer. She wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. But every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. And that's just a great description of dropping from the level of concept. Something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. So what is this river of our existence? The Buddha talked about four realities that we can touch directly, that we can experience directly. The first of them is the material element you know, of the physical world. In meditation, as our mindfulness gets stronger, we go from the concept or image of the body to feeling what we call body as simply a play of changing sensations. Now we start to feel pressure and tightness and vibration and movement and heat. And the concept of leg, the concept of back, falls away. We never really experience back. There is no sensation called back. That's not how we feel. We're feeling tightness, we're feeling pressure, we're feeling heat. That's what we're actually aware of. Then the mind creates an image, a concept, oh, my back hurts. Dropping into the level of the sensation is an essential move in meditation. Why? Because on the level of concept, we are not perceiving the momentary changes. I had a back today, I had a back yesterday, I'll have a back tomorrow. The concept back remains the same. What the concept is pointing to, the actual sensations, are changing many times a moment. So if we want to refine our perception of the changing nature of phenomena, which deconditions the grasping in our mind, we need to drop beneath the level of concept. Because the concept doesn't change.
Yet this attachment to the concept of body is very strong. And we're attached to this body, we're attached to other people's bodies. So not only are we attached to the body, but then we add to it the concept of ownership. So not only is it body, which is itself a construct, but then we think of it as my body, or your body. (laughs) Where does fear of death come from? It comes from attachment to the body. There's a wonderful story of His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, who was the head of one of the great Tibetan lineages. He died some years ago in the States. His whole body was riddled with cancer, and the body was a mess. And his disciples, he was really a very great being, and all his disciples and students, some of them were around him at the time, and they were all grieving and upset and, you know, of his impending death. And at one point it said, he turned to them and said, don't worry, nothing happens. That's quite a remarkable statement. Because his understanding was like seeing the movie on the screen. Nothing is happening. There was no identification He had no identification with the body, as being the body. No one there was being born and dying. Very different way of understanding what this body is, what its relationship is in the world. Ramana Maharshi, who's a great Indian saint, he said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. <laughs> and yet, it's mostly what we do. You know, we're very identified with the body. Why? Because we don't perceive it deeply enough. We're taking a very superficial perception of the body. We see the appearance. Oh, this is the body. This is my body, this is who I am, then get very attached. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen or read about an autopsy, you know, where just the body's opened up and you just see all the organs and the, you know, the skeleton. And if we see the body in that way, oh yes, the gallbladder is me, you know, I'm the liver. Probably not. Well, we wrap it all nicely in skin. Yep, that's me. That's who I am. It's because we're not seeing things as they are. It's just a superficial level. We create the concept, we get attached to it. So our practice brings us more and more in touch with the physical realities of the sensations that we're actually feeling. The second reality that we can experience directly beyond the physical sensations is that of consciousness, of knowing. And this is quite a mystery. You know, moment after moment, 
we're knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought. And yet when we look for this knowing, there's nothing to find. You can't, oh, there it is. So it's this mysterious phenomenon. There's nothing to find, and yet this knowing capacity is happening moment after moment. Knowing a breath, knowing a sensation, knowing a sound. So what is this? What is this knowing, and how can we understand the selfless nature of knowing? I found it helpful to reframe in the language the meditative experience in the passive voice. So what I mean by that is a sound being known, a sensation being known, a thought being known. Because when we put it in the passive voice, linguistically, it takes the I out of it. There's no I there. It's just something arising and being known. So you can experiment with this, and it's very uh, kind of obvious in the walking meditation. That's where I first started playing with this way of understanding. When you're walking, you know, there's just taking a step, and the sensations of the movement, moment after moment, are simply being known. Let's do an experiment now, just if you don't mind. Move your, if, if you would just move your arm. So just move it. Do you know you're moving it? Does anybody not know they're moving their arms? Okay, let's take it a step further. You know you're moving your arm. Do you know the sensations? of the the heaviness, or the weight, or the tingling, or the... Is anybody doing anything? It's just sensations being known, moment after moment. They're being known spontaneously, without any effort whatsoever. So this is our life, it's just moment after moment, things being known. So then we ask the question, known by what? So that's, I'll leave that question for you. Investigate. Because it's happening in every single moment. Things are being known. The breath is being known. The movement is being known. A thought is being known. Known by what? we really begin to explore the nature of awareness, the empty, knowing nature. There's nothing there, and yet the knowing is happening. So we touch the empty selflessness of consciousness. Okay, there's the physical elements, the material elements, which we can experience directly. There's consciousness. There's awareness, which we can experience directly. The third category of experience that we can touch directly is something in the Buddhist psychology called mental factors. And it's just a whole group of mental qualities 
which arise in different combinations in every moment of knowing. Mindfulness, concentration, greed, hatred, anger, love, joy, all of these are mental qualities, mental factors which arise and color the knowing in one way or another. But what happens? When we're not attentive, these mental factors arise and we habitually identify with them. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm concentrated, I'm mindful. We build a superstructure of self, a skyscraper of self, on top of momentary changing conditions. When we look carefully, we see that each of these mental factors, the love, the happiness, the joy, the anger, the fear, the depression, whatever it is, we see that all of these mental qualities are simply arising out of momentary changing conditions, just like clouds in the sky. Conditions come together, a cloud forms. Conditions change, the cloud disperses. It's love that loves. It's anger that angers. It's joy that joys. And it's fear that fears. Each of these mental qualities is arising and doing its thing. It's just manifesting its own quality. It doesn't belong to anyone. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. The clouds are not rooted. It's not like there's a big root coming down, rooting them to the earth. They simply appear when the conditions are appropriate, and they disperse when the conditions change. All of these mental states are exactly the same. They're not rooted in some, in some ground of self. And through our practice, we can begin to see how they arise out of conditions and pass away. We begin to weaken this very strong hold of identification with them. It's very interesting to see carefully what are the causes or conditions for a mind state to arise. And very often they're conditioned by a thought. I was sitting here, or you're walking, minding your own business. A thought may come, maybe it's a thought of somebody that you love a lot, and it conditions a great longing, or it's somebody you had an argument with. You just think of that person, all of a sudden the mind is filled with anger. The mind is quite a trip. I remember once, I was at IMS at the center in Massachusetts, and there was some big meeting coming up, and I was anticipating some trouble. You know, and just, I now even forget what the issue was, but it was some big issue, and I was just thought there was going to be a lot of conflict. So, just taking a walk before the meeting, 
And I kept thinking about the meeting, you know, and who was going to say what. And I was just had that thought, and I could feel myself filled with a feeling of anger and irritation. And then I thought, what just happened? I just had a thought. And all of a sudden, this flood of feelings. So then, kind of dissipated, and then I thought, let me try it again. <laughs> so I intentionally had the thought. And the same feeling came. And it was so amazing to me to see the impersonal nature of it. But we get so caught, we, we, we so take all of it to be self, to be I, to be who we are. It's interesting to observe how what makes one person happy may make another person unhappy, or vice versa. Years ago, maybe 15 years ago, a friend took me to a big rock concert in Oakland, California. It was at the Oakland Coliseum. So I don't know, there were you know, 70,000 people and this you know, really loud rock band. So there were 70,000 people there who were really enjoying themselves. <laughs> and I thought I had entered a hell realm because the music was so loud that it was painful. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> what makes one person happy <laughs> can leave another quite uninterested. There's a wonderful story of the Japanese and his Zen master and poet and hermit Ryokan, who's kind of a, a great master and a, a great poet. And he just lived up in the mountains and he would be wandering around with the villages and playing with the children. He was very poor. One time he came back to his hut and he found that everything had been stolen. Now he, had, he didn't have much to begin with, but everything was stolen. The hut was cleared out. And he said that he sat down and he wrote a haiku the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Okay, so just imagine you're going home. <laughs> Everything is cleared out. Everything is stolen. Oh, the moon at the window. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> what leaves one person quite at ease can be the source of tremendous suffering for someone else. Because it's all conditioning depending on the conditions we'll feel one way or another. Depending on our level of understanding, we'll feel one way or another. So we begin to see the impersonality of it. That all of these mind states arise out of conditions, pass away. Not I, not self. The Buddha gave one very profound teaching to his son, Rahula, which I think was a good reminder for us. He said, every aspect of the mind and body should be seen as it is with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So that would be an interesting reflection, just periodically through the day, especially when you feel like you're caught in the reaction to a certain sensation, in a mood, whatever. 
This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. It's just arising, changing conditions. So we can experience the material physical elements directly as sensations. We can experience consciousness, the knowing faculty, directly, although it's subtle. But we can experience things being known. We can explore the empty knowing nature of it. We can experience directly all of these different mental factors. The last of these realities that we can touch directly in Buddhism is called the unconditioned element, or nibbana, nirvana in Sanskrit, or the highest happiness. Now, it has many different names, and different Buddhist traditions have different descriptions of it, and even get into fights about it, you know, really what its nature is. But the Buddha, very often in the discourses, gave a very straightforward and pragmatic pragmatic (coughs) description of this highest peace, this highest good. He said, Nibbana or Nirvana, is the mind freed from the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. So these are the three roots of suffering in our lives, greed and hatred and delusion. When the mind is free of these fires, when it has cooled out, cooled out the fire, this is what the Buddha called Nibbana. And we get glimpses of it. You know, watch the next time you're really caught up in a strong emotion, maybe strong desire, a strong anger, a strong fear. And then just watch at that moment when the mind comes out of that state. It's like we're let out of the grip of something. You know, there's a momentary coolness there, a momentary ease. We could call it a momentary nibbana. You know, or notice the moment when you wake up from having been lost in a thought or a fantasy. You know, in that moment of waking up from it, that's a moment. You could call it a moment, momentary coolness. It's said that in ancient India, people would use the phrase when the cooked rice had cooled down, that the rice had nibbanaed. Because it basically means cooling or cool, cooled out with a mind at peace. So we get a taste of this momentary coolness, as I said, when we're let out of the grip of some attachment. We can taste it. We can we can feel the ease. We can taste the flavor of Nibbāna, the certain stage in meditation is called the stage of equanimity, where the mind is just flowing along, and it's simply knowing whatever is arising in a very effortless way, easeful way, without any attachment to the pleasant, any resistance to the unpleasant. So at this stage of practice, it's said that we're tasting what the mind of a fully enlightened being is. So that's another another flavor of Nibbana.
we can also understand it, this highest peace, this highest happiness, as the stilling of all the formations of mind and body. And this is really the experience of zero. Now, zero is a very interesting number. It's a very interesting notion. It's no thing, and yet it's not nothing. There is a reality to zero. And as one Tibetan text talked of this unconditioned, it said, it is, but it doesn't exist. Like when the mind stops. You know the experience of being in a room and all of a sudden the hum of the refrigerator, the, the, the refrigerator goes off and all of a sudden there's a peace and while the hum was on, we didn't even realize the hum was on until it went off. And then, ah, the sense of ease. Well, that's like the stilling of the formations. We don't realize the hum until we have a moment of them stopping. This was expressed in a very nice way by the Polish Nobel uh, poet, I'm not sure I'll pronounce this right, Wyslawa uh, Zimborska. It was a wonderful poet, and this is a couple of lines. She said, There is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. There is so much of everything, that nothing is hidden quite nicely. So our practice, in a way, is over uncovering the nothing that is. So, in our practice, we go from the level of concept, we go from the level of interpretation, really dropping into the river of our own existence, touching the reality, we begin to get glimpses of something beyond our conventional level of understanding. We get glimpses of something beyond the conventional view of the world. We really can touch a space, even for just moments, that transforms our vision of who we are and how the world is. And even though we may not live in this space, even getting intimations of it really starts to give quite a passionate meaning to this investigation of the truth that we're all engaged in. There's something very profound to understand. And it goes beyond our usual way of perceiving things. I'd just like to close with one teaching of Kalu Rinpoche, another one of the great masters of the last century. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, 
we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Sit for just a few minutes.